Good morning, everyone. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue our study following the church at Ephesus through the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6, last week we dealt with verses 1 through 4, which dealt with fathers and mothers and children. This week, starting at verse 5 through verse 9, We'll talk about when faith goes public. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And you masters, do the same things unto them, Forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. For a couple of chapters now, the Apostle Paul has been getting all up in our business. He has dealt with church relationships, with marriage relationships, with family relationships, and for some reason we tend to think that each one of those things are fair game. We think, well, it's, it's absolutely the Bible's place to instruct us how to live with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. And to a lesser extent, we accept the scriptural commands for husbands and wives and for children and parents. And, and we see that as authoritative, even when we don't really want to obey them. And yet, for some reason, without necessarily thinking it through this way, We think about our daily jobs as being separate from our religious obligations, right? We we go to work for five or six days a week, and then on the weekend we designate Sunday mornings as this, well, here's this opportunity we have to fulfill our religious obligations until we set those things aside, and then we go back to our daily grind Monday morning. Too often, serving the Lord Jesus is just a thing that we do in our time before we get back to the real work of our daily lives. Now we're going to dig into this text this morning, but let's start by trying to make one point very clear, as clear as I possibly can, and maybe as specific as I possibly can. Whether you are retired An engineer, a mechanic, a machinist, a stylist, a nurse, a teacher, a fast food worker, a barista, a maintenance man, a homemaker, a librarian, an insurance adjuster, a graphic designer and photographer, a secretary, a janitor, a banker, a bookstore manager, an office manager, a project manager, or a student, none of those things that you do takes a back seat to your service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because everything you do is service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. It tells us that 
all the work we do should be done as if we are doing it for Christ. In verse 6, it reminds us that we are always servants of Christ. So that in verse 7, everything that we do is service to the Lord. And in verse 8, we do that service knowing that the only one who can truly reward us for the work is the Lord himself. And then finally, in verse 9, on the off chance that you're not the one who is serving, but instead you're the one who is being served, you even then operate as a master with the understanding that the Lord Jesus is your master and he's not going to be impressed with how important you are. Your life cannot be separated into categories of Well, here's the secular stuff I do, and here's the religious stuff I do. Everything you do must be shaped by your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and performed as a service for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we dig into the text too deeply, we need to spend some time explaining the difference between the original meaning Paul intended and sort of the contemporary application that we're going to make today right we don't want to misuse or misapply scripture the meaning of the text here like it is in all of the bible is timeless and at the same time we recognize the first century in which paul existed does not look what much like the 21st century in our time the reality is the very first word of this text in verse 5 servants is difficult for us to grasp the word in greek is is doulos and it means a bond servant or a servant that is in non-voluntary service listen to how the new american standard bible translates this text i'm going to read verses five through nine from the nasb slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as man-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free, and masters, Do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. You hear the difference there, right? To translate that word doulos as slave is probably more accurate than the polite ideas that come to mind with us with the word servant. Unfortunately, slave also carries the ideas of for us, like the, the chattel slavery of American history, particularly, but not only, in the South. And that's not really what Paul's picturing here either. The actual idea of a first century bondservant or a first century slave is probably somewhere nestled between what you conjure in your mind when you hear the word servant and when you hear the word slave. Somewhere in between is probably where Paul means this. Because in the first century, in a city like Ephesus, bond servants or slaves made up roughly one-third of the population. 
at the height of the Roman Empire, there was an estimated 60 million slaves. They could be found doing menial labor like farm work and mining, but slaves were also members of the household. They were the ones who were teaching the family's children. They were bookkeepers in the business or clerks or even physicians. One one historian noted that, that banks were operated by rich Greek and Roman families and an educated slave accountant would be essentially be the chief financial officer. Bond servants were frequently more educated than their owners. Female servants would serve as cooks or hairdressers, tailors, nurses. So these bond servants were not citizens, And surely there were cases where mistreatment would happen. But as a general rule, this was just a commonplace practice that was not questioned. There was this kind of upward mobility that was possible for bond servants. Much like the story of Joseph in Egypt and Joseph's life, there was never a point at which he was truly free, but he also rose to power to be the second in command of the country only under Pharaoh himself. Uh, another example would be from Acts, when, when Paul was imprisoned and put on trial in front of Governor Felix. We know historically that Felix was born a slave and rose to the point where he was the governor of Judea. And his commentary, a fellow named Klein, Klein Snodgrass, great name, explains individuals ended up in bond service through many different avenues they could be born a slave they could be abandoned or sold by their parents taken captive in war they could accept bond service as a a way of paying their debts when they had gone bankrupt or they could voluntarily join into this kind of like indentured servitude in hopes of learning a trade and advancing in society And so without a doubt, some of these first century servants that Paul is addressing found themselves in horrible situations with with unbearable jobs as they were mistreated by relentless taskmasters. But the New Testament's command to bond servants does not excuse or endorse those kinds of abuses. It's merely speaking to the individuals of the world as it exists before them. I think we can all recognize that we experience the same reality, that coming to Christ in faith does not suddenly place us in a godly society, right? And so the Word of God exists to explain to individuals and churches how to live in the ungodly societies that they're parts of. By the way, that would include denouncing any form of chattel slavery as it existed in American history. I just want to be clear about that, in which... Africans were kidnapped and placed in chains and subjected to horrific abuses, worked to death in cotton fields and sugar plantations. You know, Paul is sort of famous for making lists of, you know, just horrific lists of sins. And in one of those, 1 Timothy 1 verse 10, he mentions men stealers. It's a word meaning kidnappers or enslavers. So he forbids Christians to engage in such activities. Human trafficking in in every form is a repulsive sin in the eyes of God. While the Bible does not exist to try to overthrow society 
the New Testament does undermine the practice of all kinds of slavery by asserting the equality of all people in the eyes of God. Right? We've seen this in this letter, right? There's no more Jew or Gentile, no more male or female, no more slave or free. You're all one in Christ. And we might ask, well, why, why doesn't Paul condemn all forms of slavery here, right? We, we'd kind of, if we're honest, we'd really like him to. And we'll see in a moment, he does more of that than we might initially think. But it's not his purpose to try to conform a wicked society to godly morality. It's his purpose to teach those who have come to Christ how to be transformed to the image of Christ. I'll ask you to just recall the little letter of Philemon. It's a wonderful example of how the Apostle Paul sort of undermines the abuses of society by instructing individual believers. As Paul was in Rome, he encountered a runaway slave named Onesimus who had run away from his master Philemon. And when Paul preaches the gospel to Onesimus and Onesimus is saved, Paul sends him back with a letter from the Apostle Paul to his master Philemon. And here's what Paul writes in Philemon verses 15 and 16. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while is that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me and perhaps even more dear to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. The idea is that faith in the Lord Jesus changes our position before God. It it changes how we act towards other people. Now when you think about this, no doubt it created all kinds of, of interesting and challenging situations, especially in the church. Think about what Paul has said in this letter back in chapter 2, Jews and Gentiles, they're no longer right little subgroups of Christianity. Paul says, no, Jesus has, has made you one. He has reconciled you to God, and therefore he's reconciled you to one another. In Ephesians 4, he says, every member of the church, there is unity through diversity, right? There's many members, but there's, There's one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. You think that changed the the sort of master-slave relationships that existed in Ephesus? Let's just use our imagination for a second. Let's say that we've got a, a nice little family of four in Ephesus, we'll, we'll call them the Valentius family because that sounds nice in Roman. They're wealthy enough that Daddy Valentius could afford a couple of household slaves. There's one female slave who does the cooking and, and cleaning and helps Mama Valentius with her, with her daughter and with fixing her hair. There's a, a male slave who serves as a tutor for the family's young son and does the, the bookkeeping for the family's business. Right, So you've got this little household, the reality is a little household of six. You've got dad and mom and son and daughter and a male slave and a female slave. When the gospel comes to Ephesus, how does it, how does it interrupt their lives? 
Well, first off, if they don't all come to faith in the Lord Jesus, if only one or two of them trust him, there is immediately this little, little bit of chaos as suddenly that, that, that little household that worked together so well now has different priorities. The reality is no matter which ones here and trust Jesus, life's not going to be the same for any of them. But let's just rejoice for a second and imagine that all of them, the entire family, here's the gospel. They all trust the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Now it's just easy. It's smooth sailing, right? Well, I wouldn't think so. Do they have the temptation to live their lives in, in these little categories of, well, here's secular and how I behave in my secular life, and here's religious and how I behave in my religious life? Well, yeah, I mean, as long as we're weaving a work of fiction here, go ahead and picture them walking to church on Sunday morning. Who walks in front? Who trails behind? Does it, does it look like equality? Does the family chaos that we all experience on Sunday mornings, you know, mean that Mama Valentius didn't get her hair done just right? And whose fault is that going to be? And so you can picture them getting to church, right? They would have been meeting in someone's house, so there wouldn't have been actual pews like you're sitting in. But go ahead and picture the six of them sitting together and hearing this text. Or better yet, there's a good chance that Daddy Valentius couldn't read, but the male slave is the tutor, so he could read. Maybe he's the one actually reading this text when they get the letter from the Apostle Paul. Just maybe he's even gifted to teach, and so at home, Daddy Valentius is in charge, but when they assemble, the roles are switched because the slave is an elder in the church. And meanwhile, all of them are called to serve together in the Lord's church. And so there's Mama Valentius and her daughter side by side with the female servant doing some of the basic and lowly tasks for the, helpful for the church's service. But if you can just sort of start picturing some of those real life situations, then you can start to see how this text is kind of subversive to a society and, and the society as a whole would have hated it. You can also begin to see why such a text is necessary. This equality, which all Christians are to embrace with one another, it is not permission to go start a revolution. Of, of course there are masters who thought, well, does this mean now that I have to release all my slaves and go out of business? There were slaves who thought, well, if Jesus has made me free, can't I just leave? And so this demands instruction, and the New Testament teaches us. And when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he, he, he tells them in 1 Corinthians 7, 20 through 24, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Right? He's talking about using legitimate means. Remember, this is the guy who sent Onesimus back. He goes on to say, For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. 
And so for our fictitious, valentious family, the gospel of Jesus doesn't produce chaos, it produces clarity. Servants are to remain servants, and masters can remain masters, but servants and masters alike redefine their relationship with one another based on their relationship with the Lord Jesus. We've talked a lot in recent weeks in Ephesians about the idea of submission, or that word the, that means to, to rank under with wives and husbands and and children and parents and and how there is order and not chaos and what God's designed. Here's another example in this servant-master relationship. For the purpose of order and organization, servants are to rank under their masters, but servants and masters alike have to remember we both rank under the Lord Jesus. So, that's what this text is means what's it mean to us right we we always have to do this we have to understand the text of scripture as it was meant for the original audience because it, that's that's just what it always means right that that meaning is not going to change the bible never means something that it didn't mean before but then we take that meaning and we ask ourselves well okay If I put this into practice tomorrow morning, what does that look like? I hope you understand the difference. Like if I asked for a show of hands this morning and I said, you know, how many of you guys own a slave or how many of you are owned by someone, right? It would feel like we're owned by others sometimes, but not in this sense. So since we neither own anyone nor are we owned by anyone, can we just say this text doesn't matter to me? Well, Paul's command doesn't tell these servants and masters, right? There's this secular part of your life and there's this religious part of your life and just keep them separate in your head and everything's going to be fine. Paul tells them that the way that they behave in every relationship of their life is a display of how they see their ultimate life relationship with Jesus. Every human relationship you have, how you embrace it, is shaped by the greatest relationship you have to the Lord Jesus himself. And so listen to verse 5. Servants, slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. Right? That's the human relationship. With fear and trembling in singleness or sincerity of your heart as unto Christ. Right? You're, you're to obey and respect. He uses these words fear and trembling, right? Respect and awe. Those aren't words that we usually associate with people. But Paul says to show your boss this kind of awe-filled respect as if you were working sincerely for the Lord Jesus because you are. You are working for the Lord Jesus. Every moment, that's what you're doing. And so in your job, who is it that you're trying to please? Well, look at verse 6. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Not with eye service. Just, just as a side note, I really think the Apostle Paul just invented this word out of thin air. It is about 10 miles long. It is a smash up of the word meaning slave and the word like ophthalmological, I mean, talking about your eyes. 
You've probably worked with people who knew how to be busy when someone was looking. That's eye service, serving when someone's looking. That's trying to impress people by convincing them that you're working diligently anytime they happen to be looking at you. Well, if you're doing your work with the intention of serving people, then that might work. But if your intention is like verse 5, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, eye service won't work. How can you slack off from your work when the Lord Jesus is not looking? Is there ever a moment where he's not looking? No. So be a servant of Christ, verse 6. Doing the will of God from the heart. From your heart deals with the the attitude that you have while you work. And Paul's not done with that. In verse 7, he says, With good will, doing service as unto the Lord and not to men. Paul's sort of repeating what he wrote in verse 5. Do your work for your employer as you would for Christ himself. But this time, your attitude while you work is in focus. You know. You you know. You can do your work with a bad attitude. But Paul says, look, that's not acceptable. If your focus is really to work as a means to honor the Lord Jesus, how could it ever be okay that you do your work with a resentful attitude? Your inner thoughts about work are going to change when you think about it as everything you do is a religious service. Everything that you do is as unto the Lord and not to men. And now if you think, oh, but I can't have a good attitude because I'm not being rewarded for my hard work. I mean, I can work harder, talk less, smile more, do better than every other person on the assembly line, and that's not going to get me any more money. Well, my friend, verse 8 is for you. Knowing that whatever good thing any man does, the same he shall receive of the Lord, whether he's bond or free. If you work just for your boss, then you're probably going to feel free to do a bad job because he does not deserve any better. And you'll get away with only working when he's looking, knowing he doesn't know any better. And you can hate the process the whole time and resent him, knowing that he's never going to get any better. And you can be indifferent about your attitude and your productivity because you know the boss is never going to reward you any better but if you do your work as if you're working for the lord jesus you'll work diligently because he deserves your best you'll work consistently because he is always watching you'll work joyfully and hopefully knowing he's promised to reward your faithfulness right so this this matters And it doesn't just matter for ancient servants and and modern workers. It matters for ancient masters and modern employers. Look at verse 9. And you masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is their respective persons with him. First off, like as long as we're making up this fictional story about that family, can you imagine rich and respectable Daddy Valentius sitting in the assembly in Ephesus, smiling through these commands to slaves, and then hearing verse 9 read out loud? 
Like, man, this is about equality under the Lord Jesus. You don't even rank your own personal letter. You masters, do the same things unto them. What what does that mean? I want you to think about what that means. Is Paul suddenly ordering masters to start working for their servants? Right? Taking the orders of their servants. Well, no, that's not what he's saying. It isn't about what's being done. It's about how it's being done. And so let me ask it like this. If if I summarized verses 5 through 8, which we've looked at, if I summarized verses 5 through 8, wouldn't it be, servants, do your work for your masters as if you're doing it for Christ himself? Okay, then, masters, do the same things unto them. Wouldn't that mean, masters, treat your servants as if that servant was Christ himself? How does an employer treat an employee like he would treat Jesus? Well, just using the words that Paul uses in the text here already would tell us it would be with sincerity, with respect, with goodwill. He goes on to say, forbear threatening, right? Don't threaten them. Try to get good work from them using persuasion instead of aggression. And then Paul finally encourages a master to have the same motives as a slave, knowing that your master also is in heaven, right? The Lord Jesus is the master of both of you. Listen, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, he is the master of all masters. He he looks on all of his servants lovingly as he does. He looks at us all and sees us all with equality. We are all servants. And so Paul adds, there's no respect of persons with him. There's no partiality with him. He's not going to show favoritism to the employer because of his social status. By the way, that's the very reason Paul taught servants called to faith can remain servants and masters called to faith can remain masters. He's, look, you're all called in all positions. You're called to serve Christ. So serve Christ where you're at because he knew where you were when he called you. Y'all, this is how this text matters to us. You will leave here today after having done the sacred stuff in your life and tomorrow you'll go to work and think, okay, now we can set that aside and get back to the secular stuff. Change that way of thinking. There is no separation between secular and sacred. There's, if, you, if you eat or drink or whatever you do, Paul says, do all of it for the glory of God, even when you think that it is insignificant, meaningless stuff which we've all had jobs that feel that way. And what did the Lord Jesus do for the first 30 years of his life? Expect it was carpentry, and, and, and what humility, by the way, that the God who spoke the universe into existence would, would pick up a hammer and start working to, to make something. What became of that stuff? Like, do we have a table that was made by the Lord Jesus? Look, I'm sure there is some Catholic church in Europe that says that they do, right? But Jesus, our perfect, sinless example, worked. 
worked in ways that just seemed insignificant to us. And yet we would never picture him having done it with a bad attitude toward Joseph or toward their clients or, 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 or done it well only when somebody was watching or slacked because he wasn't getting rewarded enough. Of course, we know that wouldn't be the case. We know better because if Jesus behaved that way, even while working on some project that we have no idea about, it would have mattered because we know he was fulfilling all righteousness at every moment in his life, right? But then we go to the work and we think of the stuff we do as, well, that's not sacred stuff. That's not significant enough to matter. Well, this text, Paul saying, look, it matters. If you're making someone a coffee, if you're cashing their check at a bank, if you're cleaning up a table at Chick-fil-A, if you are accepting a book back at the library, if you are connecting electrical service back to someone's house, if you're sweeping the floor at school, it matters. Everything you do has to be shaped by your faith in the Lord Jesus and done as genuine, sincere service to the Lord Jesus.